Mindfulness Mode, Episode 35. When I notice I'm getting panicky or, or angry, I stop and check my breathing. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to challenge you today. If you know anyone whose life would be improved with mindfulness, to share this podcast with them. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Anne Claire Holland with us today on the line. Anne Claire, are you in mindfulness mode? Hi, Bruce. Well, right now I am because I'm being interviewed and people are going to hear this. Okay. <laughs> Anne Claire Holland is a teacher, translator, and communicator based in Germany. She is also the creator of knitted crafts of all kinds. She's fascinated by body language and loves to communicate with people from the many different cultures in the world. Anne-Claire has been working on a new way to teach Biz English, focusing on Globish, an international summarized form of English, more suitable for companies who need to communicate with people globally. Anne-Claire includes mindfulness in her thoughts and daily life. Hey, Anne-Claire, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Expand on the details for Mindful Tribe. Okay, with pleasure. Um, well, one thing I'd like to say is that uh, when I lived in London, it was much easier to practice mindfulness because every time I went on the underground, there were signs everywhere saying, mind the gap, ah. accompanied by a recorded message saying, mind the gap. So, you know, lucky Londoners have a, a regular reminder of uh, some kind of mindfulness. Yes. But, uh, so here I'm up to my own resources, but of course there's a lot of help out there. So mindfulness, well, yes. You know what? I think it should actually be mindlessness. Really? It, well, isn't the idea to rid ourselves of all our busy thoughts? Yes. And I don't mean mindless in a crazy way, but really, you know, freeing the mind so that we can be mindful. Right. Sorry, I love words. I love to play with words. I'm fascinated by them. And I was just thinking about the word mindfulness. And well, It's um, true. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I have big problems with mindfulness because my head is constantly full of ideas. I have a novel bit written in one corner. I have a new knitting pattern in the other. I have ideas for letters I want to write to the council, whatever, whatever, you know, ideas for my English courses. So it's a real fight for me, actually, to be to work on this one. But without it, if I didn't have this thread through my life, I'd be totally lost. Oh, well, tell me when you started to practice mindfulness. What age were you at when that started to happen? Well, as a child, I was brought up in a mindful community. I was brought up in a spiritual community run by John Bennett, John Godolphin Bennett was his full name. He was a pupil of George Gurdjieff and Spensky, who were... Um, Yes, I was, how, can I, how can I say? Well, they they, they practice mindfulness. And um, I was brought up with people working in this way, living, incorporating it into their lives. The community I was born into, where my father and mother lived, um, people would do their regular jobs, go to work every day. My parents were teachers. And in the evenings and the weekends, they would do um, talks, lectures, meditations, as wonderful kind of spiritual dance, or dancing exercises, Called, known as the movements, which Mr. Gurdjieff discovered in the depths of, I don't know where, the Himalayas or somewhere, where he was um, traveling um, after he escaped from Armenia with a small group of people. 
um, this small, like, what would you call it? Were the seekers of the truth. That's how they're called, the seekers of the truth. And he was literally led there on a, a horse or a donkey blindfolded so that he would not be able to find the place again. And there, this is actually beautifully, um, you can see this in a film called Meetings with Remarkable Men, which was um, directed by Peter Brook. It's all in there. Anyway, so there was a, a com as a child, there were all these adults um, running around doing these special dances, doing meditations, and, and so on. And we kids just kind of ran around and did our thing and thought they were all nuts, but, you know, fair enough. Well, this sounds like a really, really interesting childhood. And before we started the interview, you mentioned it was basically a type of commune. Is that right? Well, the story is, I'll try to keep it really short because I know we don't have much time. Mr. Bennett uh, was in, uh, fought in the First World War, the Second World War. He was a very, um, he was very high up. He worked with the, I don't know, all sorts of Prince Prince Sabahedin, I think was his name, of Turkey. And he actually helped these people to escape in, uh, across the Bosphorus and had all sorts of adventures. And he could have become, he, he then worked, I'm sorry, I'm getting my time a bit mixed up. But after the Second World War, he worked for the coal industry in England. And they had a house, a beautiful house in Kingston-on-Thames, which was originally a sort of holiday house of Henry VIII, uh, not far from Hampton Court, a very old house. And... Um, well, the property was, the house was actually Edwardian. And this is where the coal, uh, what do you call them, coal organisation, had their headquarters. And he was working on developing better forms of energy and so on. But at the same, well, I can't say the same time, at some point in his life, he met this man, Gurdjieff, who was established in Paris, I think, at that time. And he had lived in a very small flat, which was constantly full of students from all over the world, Russia, England, France, wherever. And uh, he took on Mr. Gurdjieff's teachings and gradually, actually, he could have been, a, could probably could have been prime minister, but the spirit, his spiritual life was more important to him. And he gave up the, the coal industry and somehow managed to acquire this wonderful property. It was like an oasis in almost in the middle of London. And um, people came to live there and he, he taught these teachings of Gurdjieff, but not only Gurdjieff's teachings, um, other spiritual teachers. He was always interested, always curious. And during the course of my childhood and teenhood, later, he actually established a school um, in Sherborne, Gloucestershire in 1971, I think he started it. And uh, the idea, it was a huge country pile, it used to belong to Lord Sherborne. And every year, about 100 students of all ages came and spent, I think, nine or 10 months, I think it was 10 months, working intensively with Mr. Bennett and a team of people, including my father, on meditation, these working, doing these sacred dances. And what I want to say about these sacred dances is that they are wonderful for mindfulness practice because you have to work with the three centers. The, the, the three centers. Okay, now just a yes. second. Mindful dancing. I've heard before that this can really be something that can help you in your mindfulness so tell us more i know you're just about to so tell us more about the the sacred dancing and i'm glad you interrupted me because i was trying to remember so gurdjieff said it says that we are three-brained beings we have the emotional center the physical center and the intellectual center i think i hope i'm right i'm sure if you know any of the former students hear me later they will be yeah, correcting me, but um, and what with these movements you are really challenged. It's not like nice dancing. It's not like ballet or jazz. It's very challenging. 
and you have to do the impossible exercises. You have to move your right arm, let's say, up and down, your left arm side to side, your head is doing something else, your feet are doing something else, and you come into all sorts of conflict because there are, I can cite myself as an example, you want to do it well, you know, we're all brought up to do things well and to achieve. Yes, we are. And that is not the point of these dances. The point is to try and unite these three centers. And you have it all. You have the emotion to think, oh, my God, I'm never going to get this. I want to give up. You have your body trying to do uh, whatever, your mind. There are also exercises where you have to count. You count while you're doing these movements. And I have had the experience where I have for a moment come into a space where I'm fully there, fully present. And then I think, wow, I've got it. And then it all falls apart. I lose it. Now, this is fascinating because as soon as you started talking about sacred dancing, something Mm -hmm. popped into my mind, and that is, is there a parallel between sacred dancing and yoga? What do you think? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not very good at yoga. Um, I wouldn't compare the two. Okay. Obviously, you can't compare the movements with yoga. Fair enough. Yoga is a great thing in itself. Mm -hmm. You can do it without falling asleep. I used to fall asleep every time we got to take a little break and lie down, so I gave up. Um, Yoga is wonderful, but no, the movements is a very very intense experience. So is it high energy, would you say? Absolutely. It produces energy. And, of course, when you're working with with 20 people uh, doing these dances, everyone's struggling, everyone going through their personal hell, because, believe me, it's not fun. Okay, so take us into one of those dance, maybe it's a class or a dance experience. Is there one person at the front doing it and you watch and you try to follow? Tell us, is that what it's like? Or yes. Show, yes. There are highly trained teachers, highly trained movement teachers. Mr. Bennett used to teach them and he had teachers who taught them. By the way, my father was hopeless at the movements. He worked, he was Mr. Bennett's uh, right-hand man. And, and Mr. Bennett's wife was also hopeless at the movements. Uh, you don't have to be good at these dances to, to reach enlightenment. Um, but anyway, so there's a teacher standing up at the front of the class, and you have to be very quick. And bad luck if you're in the back row. Um, you know, people in the front row, they get to see everything. And the teacher shows, and you have to do it mirror image. Yeah, the teacher stands facing you and says, raise your arm, and he raises his right, uh, whatever, his right arm. And of course, if you're not careful, you'll raise your left arm. So you have to also be aware of that um and the uh they do it differently i've had many different teachers um some of them will teach you a whole movement from start to finish now there are i think 49 particular movements altogether and then there are other there are dervish dances women's dances it's it's wonderful and actually uh, you can see them on youtube now i was just going to ask that how uh, do we see them on youtube if you look up gurdjieff movements Okay, so G-U-R-D-J-I-E-F-F, Jurdif Movement. Excellent. Well, I'll look that up. Now tell me, is there music or beats as you do the dance? The music is out of this world. It is beautiful. And it was inspired by the music played on very simple instruments in this very secret school, monastery, wherever where Gurdjieff was during this time. So Anne-Claire, take us to now in your life. I want to know what mindfulness looks like now. Do you still do the sacred dances or just tell us about it? Um, I can't. You need to go to classes. And here in Germany, there are very few centers. Okay. Uh, these days, uh, you can. there are people who teach them at the local ed, uh, adult education college, but I disapprove of that. 
because these dances are very sacred and a lot of people um, get the wrong idea. If you go there to do these classes to be good at them, you're on the wrong way. You know, the point is to go through this inner struggle. Oh. So when you say sacred, do you mean sacred in a Christian kind of way or explain that? Uh, I don't like the word Christian. Sacred. Sacred for me is Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, God, God connected. Yes. So yeah? that's, I'm glad you explained that. Yes. And one thing about Mr. Bennett, by the way, was he welcomed all religions. He, we had all sorts of people showing up. We had, in, in, when I was very little, the Shivapuri Baba. I don't know if you've heard of him, an Indian, Indian, I don't know, saint who was 112 years old when he came to visit. And he, when he died, I think he was 130 years old. Fascinating. Um, and then later in the school where I lived from age 13 to 18, we had a wonderful Cambodian monk called Bhante who worked with color meditation. There was the green meditation, orange. Um, yeah, they actually painted a whole room green for the green meditation sittings. Oh. Well, yeah, can we, you tell us a little bit more about color meditation? Oh, I'm not the expert, but I mean, I think, you know, color, uh, green represents life, no? Yes. Growth, red and orange, passion, yellow, maybe healing. Um, as I said, I was then I was just a teenager. I wasn't really, we were just getting on with our own lives and sort of occasionally joining in classes, but we weren't really involved. Um, you can also, um, you can create healing water if you fill green my father used to do this if you fill green bottles with water and put them in the sunlight for a few weeks or months or well, weeks i'd say with water and then drink it it has an, a healing it has healing properties from and, the sun oh and, and how do you make it green just green food you color don't make it green you don't the bottle is green oh green i'm bottle. glad you explained that oh, okay. yes yes and you can do it with oil a friend of mine did it with oil and then she'd leave the oil in the green bottle for months in the sunlight. She lived in the south of France, which helped. Um, and then she would use it, you know, if her children hurt themselves or something, just rub it onto their skin. Um, that's a whole science which I'm afraid I don't know enough about. But, um, yeah, this is, this, we had all sorts of, we had a, um, a Sufi sheikh, we had all, and all of the students came from all denominations. We, fight, we, we celebrated Jewish festivals, Christian festivals. We did zikas. We did. Oh, it was just wonderful. Wow, you had a fabulous youth, didn't you? It sounds well, so exciting. You know, at the time, at the time, I just wanted a normal life. I wanted to be like my friends, have two parents, a house, a TV, and you know, Sunday roast every Sunday. Right. Um, only now, in retrospect, can I really appreciate what an amazing upbringing it was. Right. But then and, I wants to be normal, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, that certainly sounds very, very interesting. And Claire, I know you're passionate about crafts and knitting. Tell us about mindfulness and your work with crafts. Well, I was very happy to hear. I was listening. I listened to. Um, I have a set of morning meditation. Morning, well, general meditations from Osho, and um, I'm not. I have phases with meditating where I can actually. I can sit and I can get, disappear for forty minutes. Um, and lately I have not been able to do that at home. I, I, I can't sit still. I can when I'm off in the woods or I go and visit little, the little statues, little grottos with the, the statue of the Virgin Mary, whatever, out in nature or in the church, I can get into a deep meditation very quickly. But at home, I can't. Anyway, but I do, every morning I get up, I sit and I knit and listen to various talks or whatever. And I was listening to Osho and he said, um, meditation doesn't mean sitting for 40 minutes and trying to resist scratching your feet. 
It can be also doing a craft, like weaving, or and, and all the Sufis, they weave, they make carpets, you know, in Turkey, all the carpet makers. So I was very happy about that. So I have allowed myself to adopt knitting also as a form of meditation. And it has all the ingredients, because you sit, you're still, and you can choose what kind of knitting you do. If you do something very simple, it can just be simple and repetitive and soothing. If I do a more complicated design, then I really have to be mindful. Because if I do, yeah, I've just been doing a, a design of a reindeer, making some, some wrist warmers. And, you know, if I miss one stitch or get it wrong, the whole design's out. So I have to be very present. Right. So yeah. the more That's complex it. it is, the more mindful it is. Absolutely. Um, but it, as I said, knitting, knitting is becoming, um, in America and in England, actually being used much, much more in therapy. Uh, against depression mainly, and this is an area I would love to go into. Unfortunately, I'm not a trained therapist, but I'm investigating possibilities. Um, and the funny thing is I have been in, in clinics over the last few years because two years ago I had a cancer scare and a oper heavy operation, and I fell into a deep depression afterwards. And I really was, in I could hardly move, I could hardly speak, but I could still knit. And were you able to use your mindfulness knowledge and experience to help you get out of that depression? No, I was lost. I was, I had never, it was nine, it lasted nine months long. I was, it was the dark night of the soul. I was in the belly of the well, you name it. I was there. I and was, so I was swearing at God. I was screaming and swearing at God saying, you know, God, thou hast forsaken me. Or actually mm. I was using much worse language than that. I was just, I'd never experienced it. But what amazed me was, in the evenings, there's nothing to do, so people would knit. And in spite of being actually hardly able to knit myself, I was able to help other people, to teach them how to knit. I even created a hat. I helped a woman create a knitted hat. She asked me, and I said, oh, I'll do it, out of habit. And all the while I was helping her, and it was literally step for step. I didn't write out a pattern anything. I was thinking, oh, my God, she's going to kill me. This is going to be a disaster. And to my amazement, she produced a beautiful hat. Wow. And in fact, she made another one for her daughter. And the same thing with playing the piano. I play the piano. Um, I, even though I was in the depths, really, I can't describe it and I won't go into it here because it was too painful. Um, although it was my, it was my a blessing in retrospect, I was still, I was able to sit there and play the piano and accompany people singing songs. And so was that a mindful experience for you as well? I'm a bit wary of the word mindful, but, um, I suppose it did show me that I thought I was gone. I thought I was lost. I just wanted to die. And it gave, it did give me hope. It did remind me that I was actually still there. So I suppose you could call that mindfulness. Yeah. So as you describe this, it sounds to me as though the knitting and the piano playing helped you in a lot of ways in a, in a mindful kind of way. Would you agree with that? It certainly did because, you know, there were all sorts of therapy. There was dance, there was art, and normally I love to paint. I'm not a good painter, but I'll do it anyway. I would sit in front of a piece of paper and just cry. I could not paint, but I could still knit. And the thing about knitting is that it coordinates your brain, your hands, your uh, your creativity, and then there's the pleasure, there's the, the, the tactile, the feel of the, the yarns, you know. You can knit with all sorts of things. You can knit with cotton, with silk, with wool. And then the colors. And I suppose, yes, maybe my creativity um, helped me. And yes, when you're, when you're knitting or working on a project, you, ha you have to be mindful if you want, don't want to make a mess of the whole thing. Yes. And so what do you think it was that brought you out of this depression? Um, time. 
I find it interesting that it lasted nine months, you know, which is the time yes. a baby takes to, to develop inside the womb. It was almost exactly nine months, and it was a rebirth. Mm-hmm. It, it, it stood my life on its head. And it was a wake-up call. And at the time, I really, I just wanted to die. But uh, after I came out, I realized, wow, that was a chance. I had been given a chance. And my life has taken a complete um, and a different turn. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't, you know, it would take ages to tell you everything. But basically, I just sort of woke up and thought, no, I'm not going to live the way I did before. Fantastic. I lost a lot of friends. My, I have three sons. Each one of them did not speak to me at different times for about three or four months. They refused to speak to me, to communicate with me, because I just sort of burst out and said, oh, right, you know, it was lovely being your mum, but I'm, you know, we're grown-ups now, and I'm not going to wipe your backside every time you, whatever, you know, get on with it. Right, right. So, you know, we're, <laughs> who's we're, this woman? <laughs> so were medications a part of your treatment as well? Sadly, yes. And I think they were totally useless and they possibly made things even worse, but I was totally desperate. But as soon as I came out of the clinic, I stopped taking them. I mean, I didn't just do cold turkey, but very quickly I reduced them. Okay. Uh, and but- I had no problem. I mean, I really think, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't say, I would, don't want to be irresponsible and advise people not to take medication, but I do think it is used much too freely and very irresponsibly and often because a lot of doctors and they don't know what to do. Right. Um, I was in one clinic twice and uh, within the space of four years. And the second time I saw the same people who were there before. And oh. they come along, they take the medication, they're given a bill of whatever, and then they go off and do the same thing, you know. And I realized I had to change things in right. my life. Okay, so I want to talk about that. How did you change things? Tell us about your new exciting rebirth. <laughs> well, for one thing, I'm totally broke. I'm overdrawn at the bank and I haven't worked for two years, but I've never been happier, never. Um, so my new life, well, what did I do? Well, one thing is I, I stood up to my sons because I, I spoiled them. Uh, I, I, having not had a mother myself, I wanted to be the perfect mother and make up to them for what I had missed out on, all that kind of thing. And I overdid it, and so I, I had to really stand my ground. And it was very painful, very painful, because they were com- totally confused. They couldn't understand it. But now we have a very good relationship. Um, I also, before I g- became ill, I was the, I was poor little orphan Annie. I was always looking for my mother. I was, would call my friends and cry. I don't know what to do. Oh, I'm so unhappy. And so I came out and decided to take responsibility for myself. And people, some friends who were used to mothering me, they couldn't handle this at all. They were offended. You know, they'd say, oh, we're worried about you. We want to help you. And I'd say, I don't want to be helped. But you're doing this and you're doing that wrong. I said, maybe I am, but only I can find out. Oh, so it's all about responsibility. And what do you think it was that made you decide you wanted to take responsibility for yourself in life? It was a slow process. It was a gradual process. But I did see when I came out of this depression that the way I had been conducting my life up until then was uh, not working for me. I mean, I got cancer. Well, I, apparently, I don't know, they didn't find anything, but I had this huge, great tumor inside my intestine, which I didn't even notice. It was growing for about six years. I didn't notice it. That, that was where I was, you know, talking right. about mindfulness. Um, so um, I just, yeah, I just realized, I'm, and I decided I am not going to continue working the way I was before. I was teaching, I was translating, I was working till late into the night. I never took a free day. 
And I decided to sort the money. And also my biggest fear was my son's leaving home, two fears, uh, three, being alone and, and not having any money, not managing. And I actually got myself into this situation. The sons, as I said, didn't speak to me for six months. They've all left, sorry, three months. They've all left home anyway, and they're all fine, and we're getting on wonderfully. Um, the work, I, I could have gone back to my old teaching jobs. People wanted me to come back, but I said no. Even though I knew my savings were running out, I didn't know what I was going to do. It has not been fun. You know, it's, it's a drag not having money. But something in me just kept saying, no, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Keep Very going. interesting. Very interesting. Well, Anne-Claire, I've worked in bullying prevention for some time, and I wonder if you have a story about bullying of some kind that may tie into mindfulness. Absolutely. I know my son was bullied horribly at school, oh. my eldest son, until finally, after two years of being bullied every day in the school bus by a boy who was actually younger than him but huge he finally flipped out and threw him to the ground and actually kicked him he had to be dragged away he could have really harmed him but after that everybody left him alone and uh, of course the parents called the police the policeman showed up got my son out of the class but the policeman had asked the teachers parents other kids about this boy and the policeman said to my son in confidence i can understand why you kicked this boy and that was, you know, of course, not to be condoned, violence, blah, blah, blah. No, but no. really transformed my son's life. He got respect. And so this must have been a number of years ago, am I right? This was long, the years, 10 years ago. He was 16, no, how old was he? It was over 10 years ago. Yes. 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 Um, but this boy was a horrible bully. Um, he would bully everybody. And his parent, he was an only child. His parents were much older. They could not, would not hear a word against him. He could do no wrong. Right. And after that, did your son ever have to deal with bullying again? No. No. And you know what? He's wonderful. He, um, in our small town where we lived there, um, oh, you know, the kids go out at night. They go to the disco. They get drunk. And they, a lot of the guys, I don't know what it's like in Canada or in the States, but they get very aggressive and they come and say, "What are you looking at? Me? Why are you looking at me like that?" You know, mm-hmm. and my son would just smile at them beatifically and say, "Hi, would you like a cigarette?" Offer them a cigarette, you know, give them a hug, and and dis- disperse the whole uh, aggression. Mm. And he's done that again and again in different situations. Something happened after that sort of outburst where he almost killed this guy. He, um, I don't know, just amazing, just greets them with love. And it's not anything I told him to do or taught him to do. And by the way, I never t- told my children about my childhood or, or anything spiritual because um, I felt always felt, you know, live by example. I mean, they were aware that my ex-husband and I went on weekend seminars and named Gurdjieff, and they heard me playing the piano, playing the music as they fell asleep at night. They right. loved the music, by the way. But I never imposed anything on them. Uh, my father never imposed anything on me. Um, right, but you set the example, as you said. I hope so. And somehow my son has this wonderful attitude when people, um, unfortunately they do, he now lives in Berlin and there are mm-hmm. all sorts of people there, are aggressive towards him. And he diffuses it with a smile and an offer of a cigarette or a Mars bar or something. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. Claire, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? I would say my father. Okay. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Um, it has helped me to deal with them far better. It's helped me, it's helped me to 
to sit, get quiet, look at them, accept them, and let them happen. And it's amazing how quickly they, they dissipate. And Claire, tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Well, that's, of course, an essential part. <laughs> yes. But so if we didn't breathe, we'd drop dead. But um, <laughs> I don't do any complicated breathing exercises. Um, but I do, when I notice I'm getting panicky or, or angry, I stop and check my breathing. Right. Do you uh, recommend a book on mindfulness? I could recommend a million books. Um, a name, of course, I've already recommended, uh, mentioned Gurdjieff and Mr. Bennett, anything by them. Um, but they're quite, can be quite tough going. Tick. Tich Nhat Hanh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yes. Uh, I think he's wonderful. So if I have to choose one, I'd say him. And what book by him? Oh, goodness. I'm sorry. You got me there. Any oh. any book by him. Okay. I'm sure he's got a book with mindfulness in the title. I've read so many, I can't remember. Of course. <laughs> what advice would you give a person who is new to mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Oh, gosh. There is so much out there now so many websites so many you know the 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 site i find really great is the evolving wisdom sites they're all there all the big guys i'd I'd send them there because there's a choice there are so many people involved Uh, and i would say uh, also always question always question you know what i mean don't just accept everything you hear Yes. Have enough respect for yourself not to be totally impressed by someone who appears to be a guru. Listen to your intuition. And Claire, it has been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today. How can Mindful Tribe learn more about you and what you do and possibly contact you? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea. Um, Well, I'm on Facebook. Well, that's That's a great way. I have not got a super-duper website or anything. But Facebook, I mean, that's where I do most. That's where I, I do my knitting stuff. That's where I actually I do everything. Facebook, Facebook is my office. And how would we find you on Facebook? Just look up my name, Anne-Claire Holland. So it's Anne with an E on the end, A-N-N-E, Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E, and Holland. Hello, there's a hyphen in between the Anne and the Claire. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, and Holland, I like the name, yeah. Um, and then if anyone wants to get in touch, send me a friendship request. But I always, if, when people just send a request without an explanation, I always say, who are you? Why do you want to be my friend? You know, because there's a lot of people out there. Sure. So, so if someone said they heard you on this show and they'd love to learn more about you and connect with you, then there's a possibility that you would you would accept that. Absolutely. It's just, you know, people tend to send a request and, and without any explanation. And I find that rude apart from anything else. Right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some people, a lot of people like to collect friends on Facebook and just have big sure. numbers of friends. <laughs> and I don't want to belong to that. <laughs> and Claire, you are a fascinating person. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have had the chance to talk with you about your life and how mindfulness has played a role. And I just thank you so much for being part of the interview today on Mindfulness Mode. And Claire, thank you so much once again and all the best to you. Same to you, and thank you for letting me take part. (laughs) You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.